Welcome to Witchlit, a place to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Carrie Connor is the leader of The Gathering Grove, a family-friendly earth-based spiritual group and sanctuary, and has been learning her craft since the 1980s. A graduate from the University of Wisconsin, Carrie earned a BA in communications. She is an Aquarius and the author of several books, CBD for Your Health, Mind, and Spirit, Spells for Good Times, Wake, Bake, and Meditate, 420 Meditations, and her two most recent, Conjuring with Cannabis and the Weed Witches Journal. Carrie Connor, welcome to Witchlet. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, thanks so much for reaching out. I'm so excited to have you on. And um, I really enjoyed your book. And we talked, uh, you know, folks know we always talk a little bit before. And um, I am not a weed witch. So I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to get into this and talk to you about it. But the first question we have for everybody on the show, and you've written a lot of books, so I feel like you can speak to this, is, uh, you know, in this age of TikTok and, oh, the book is dead and all of this, why write? Why still write books? The book is never going to be dead. They've been saying that forever. <laughs> They've been saying it for, for a long time. Um, I, I've worked in two different bookstores, and my first one was a Borders in 2002. And back then, they were saying, oh, no, books are going to disappear. They couldn't believe a bookstore went into our town because, oh, that bookstores are just going to disappear. And yeah, Borders did, but that was because Amazon killed it. But I mean, <laughs> we still are going to have bookstores. Yeah. People love books. People love books. Even if it's an ebook, people still love books. Mm-hmm. And you need information. And this is how we convey information. And it's how we entertain ourselves. And it's 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 a part of our world. It's never going to go away. Yeah. I don't and, ever believe that'll go away. And writing for you, like what is the the fire for that? Um apparently <laughs> i've been thinking about this a lot lately because i started like writing my autobiography and i realized that my earliest memories go back to me banging away on a old manual typewriter and i had no idea what i was typing because of course i couldn't spell you know i'm just banging away but up here i thought i was putting stuff down on paper and that's it's like it's always been that way i have to get what's in here out and on Mm -hmm. paper um when i was in sixth grade we didn't have a school newspaper so i started one and then junior high i was on the seventh grade i was on the school newspaper eighth grade i was the editor uh by my freshman year of high school um i was a big hockey fan so I was writing for it was a newspaper in Chicago called Chicago Land Hockey, and I covered our conference, my entire hockey conference. Um, and then high school, I was uh, editor, I was on the, the the newspaper staff, and then I was editor of the newspaper my senior year. And it's like I've I've always written, I've mm-hmm. always written, and <laughs> I haven't known any. I've never known not to. When I was in college, I would take creative writing classes. Um, My mother wrote. uh, She she would doodle poems and she worked for the local newspaper when I was a baby and before I was born where she would do like the social calendar. Mm -hmm. But I think I get part of it from her, obviously, because she had that in her, too. But I just I took it a little bit farther, (laughs) a little bit farther than what she did with it. 
I love that maybe you were imprinted with the bug. If she it, was writing. It kind of feels like it because in a way, I mean, I have a cousin who um, on my mom's side, she also wrote a book about health and fitness. And I have a brother who like many years ago wrote a book about chess. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's like we all have that thing where we have to write about it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So what did getting published like? Because you've written a lot of books for Llewellyn, but you've written for some other um, occult type publishers and, and stuff. So what did getting your first book published look like? My first book getting published was so not normal. It, this does not happen to anybody. And I couldn't believe this happened to me. So I was working at the Borders at the time. And at the at Borders stores, they were kind of like, they like to hire very different people and people that had specialties in different sections. So mine was the new age section. And I didn't work on the sales floor. I worked in the back room and did the special processing and all this other stuff. But if they needed help in the new age, they'd call me. And I had all of these people would be asking for just a little tiny book that they could carry around with them that tells them what stuff means. And I'm like, it does not exist. And they're like, are you sure? I'm like, no, it doesn't exist. Because I had access to not only the books we had in the store, but anything that I could order from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't exist. So I'm like, oh, wait, it doesn't exist. So I sat down and I wrote it in two weeks. And I sent it to this agent that I had submitted something to when I was in high school. And I graduated high school in 1988. So, I mean, this was 14 years later, if I can Mm -hmm. math it all. And I, 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 this is, they didn't even take email submissions at this point. We, they, you had to print it all out and put it in the, the priority mailbox and send it off to them in the snail mail and everything. <laughs> and, and I got a phone call and she says, Hey, I want to represent this book. I can represent, I can sell this book. And I'm like, really, you, you want it? And she says, yes. And I remember you. And she she wow. remembered me from something I had submitted when I was in high school. And I I was a little surprised, but I mean, she kind of went into detail about what I had submitted. I'm like, she she remembers. And so she had to mail me the contracts and then I was going to have to sign them and mail them back. <laughs> and. It was three days after she said she could sell this book. I was getting ready to go to town to do the, I used, I was the, I was really big in the PTO and I was in charge of the variety show and it was variety (laughs) show night and we're about to head out the door and I get this phone call and I'm just like, answer the phone. And she's like, I sold the book. (gasps) Wow. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Hadn't even officially signed the paperwork yet. And she she sold it until it was New Age Press at the time, which they have since been um, acquired by uh, uh, Weiser. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did the first book and then New Page wanted a second one, which the first one was the Pocket Spell Creator. Then there was the Pocket Guide to Rituals. And then she got me an offer from Alpha to do the pocket idiot's guide to potions. So I was doing a whole lot of pocket stuff and then I didn't do anything for a while. And then I, I came up with the idea for spells for tough times 
and my agent had left the, the company that she had started and they put me over with another agent and I came up with the submission for Llewellyn and this agent, I didn't, I didn't like her. She wanted me to change all of this stuff to do other things. And I'm like, but that's, that's not what they say on their own submissions page as to what they want. Yeah. And so we didn't agree. So I fired her and I submitted to Llewellyn on my own. And that was spells for tough times. And they have published several titles with me since. They asked me to do the Ostara book. So I did the Ostara book. Mm -hmm. And then I hadn't been writing much. And I was working at a Barnes & Noble because bookstore person. And our store was, we, we knew we were losing our lease. And I had started writing Wake, Bake, and Meditate. And I decided I was just going to start writing more. And then the pandemic hit, and I had a whole lot of time to start writing more. <laughs> so one of the things I think is really interesting is you, you talk about, I think it's either in the introduction to this book or somewhere in the book, um, the Conjuring with Cannabis book, that, you know, you'd written about witchcraft and you had written about, you know, weed. CBD and weed. Yeah. And then you kind of like melded though so what was the impetus to go oh no i can write about both these things and talk about this so what was really the because i do it myself and um honestly i think the pandemic changed the witch world in a whole lot of ways some for mm -hmm. the good some not for the good <laughs> <laughs> some definitely not for the good but it, it definitely broadened our numbers mm -hmm. and the whole way that people are finally realizing after, you know, 98 years of propaganda that cannabis is a plant and it ain't going to kill you like they yeah. tried to tell us. Free uh, for madness. All yes, bullshit. <laughs> exactly. Um, I was very surprised yesterday because I got an email from my publicist saying that um, Head Magazine had printed the excerpt of um, Wake, Bake, and Meditate, the chapter on the a brief spiritual history or his, a brief history of the spiritual use of cannabis. Mm -hmm. And that's just it. It's, it's been used for thousands of years in spiritual uses. And for me anyway, I know there's people out there who separate them, but for me, I cannot separate my my craft from my spirituality mm -hmm. it's it's all combined into one thing right and a big part of that is using weed and i wasn't i wasn't a stoner in high school mm -hmm. i wasn't i did not smoke hardly at all back then and i've i i've learned that i can't smoke stuff that's got a whole lot of other uh, um pinene in it you mm -hmm. know anything that makes you smell like pine Ooh, because i am so allergic to pine Oh, that, so even that, yeah. yeah, that chemical, yeah. So, you know, it's like there's different things you have to be aware of and things you have to, you know, educate yourself on. And I spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, comes across, error, it, it comes across in the book because I did love that you mentioned that, you know, some people, because um, this was my experience. I was not a stoner in high school. I was a bit of a stoner in college. And then I got pregnant with my son. And the first time I got stoned when I was, you know, he was with my parents. I was alone. I was with friends and I smoked and I 
had a panic attack. I was so anxious and that had never happened before. And I, I love that you mentioned that in the book is like this, you know, this may not be for everybody. There are people who have yeah. these negative reactions and, I, and it was just kind of reassuring to go, okay, maybe I'm not like a weirdo. Well, and it could like, be to just too, even read that. It, it could even be just what you were smoking. Mm-hmm. There are so yeah. many different strains and yeah, there's ones out there. I, I cannot stand uh, which one is it? Black Afghan. I cannot. That makes me paranoid, anxious, mm-hmm. shaky, cannot smoke yeah. it. But Northern Lights and I is a happy girl. Yeah. It's like the so, only I mean, the positive st- experience I've had since then, like just, you know, in my later adulthood, I guess. Um, uh, <laughs> we have undisclosed friends who maybe grow their own. And we joke that it's damn near rope hemp. And just the most (laughs) mellow calm like it just is like having a cup of tea Mm -hmm. it is the best I don't feel high I just relax and I was like okay so this is clearly what I need (laughs) so unfortunately (laughs) they live in a different country so it is not something I can access with any regularity but no um, no no but I do now anyway Someday, yeah. maybe. Maybe someday, yeah. So it's, you know, I think it's really interesting to me to think about. Um, and I think now, I mean, I live in California. Recreational marijuana is legal here. Um, like that you can walk in to a dispensary and order your cannabis, like a, your double espresso. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. cool. It is funny. Yeah. I, I use my I use my app and pre-order so I can do the roll through and don't even have to get out of my car. Nice. Because me- medical people can do that in Illinois. Rec can't, but medical oh, okay. we have. Yeah. That we can, we literally drive into the building. Mm-hmm. Drive into the building. Because <laughs> yeah. that way they can't say you're not in the building picking up your weed. So you drive your car into the building. And they serve you that way. And then you drive out of the building. Yeah. I was going to say, here, I don't, I, I'm not super up on the law, um, but I know that like medical, you can have delivered to your house. Yeah. I know there are other places. I think um, Nevada, I think it, recreational can be delivered to your house yeah. too. I'm I not think. sure about recreational here, but I know medical, you can. I don't, have a, be, I don't have a medical card, but I, I, I think medical, it should be like anywhere. I mean, yeah. if I can get my thyroid medications through the mail, I should be able to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Someday. Well, and as you pointed out very early on, it is a plant that grows in the dirt. It is a plant. It is a plant. <laughs> so I feel like this is where this conversation is where we could just talk about weed and, we can, <laughs> and kind of not talk about writing, but I want to make sure we talk about writing too. But so one of the things I thought was really interesting in this book that I had not really thought about is because I don't think, I don't know, you know, time is a flat circle or whatever. Like, I don't think I've personally ever done ritual on a substance, but it was curious to think about like combining cannabis with other plants to work Mm -hmm. with the spirit of cannabis and the spirit of those plants in a ritual or ceremonial kind of way. And so do you want to just talk through like how you, how you like, how you decide like what plants work together for this thing and kind of how you went about writing these rituals? Cause I think I, they're really beautiful. 
what I did honestly is when I I wanted to learn more, so I went and looked up um, places that I could just buy other smokables, mm-hmm. and I bought every single one I could find. Pretty much, <laughs> seriously, I spent. Hundreds of dollars <laughs> to try all these different things out, and because you can't you can't write about it if you don't try it. Right, you have to know what it does, and uh, it's like I I have a terrible time sleeping, and I know that there are other herbs that if I bind them with my cannabis, they make me sleep better, mm-hmm. and I need to get myself to just do it more often. I finally, I did it last night and it's like, oh my gosh, I slept so much better last night. Mm-hmm. And I, I get out of practice. We all get out of practice. Yeah. But it's like anything that I, I try all of this. I have to try it all. So when I'm looking for, uh, say I was like last night's herbs that I use is for sleep and for dreams. So I look for anything that has anything to do with that. I try them out individually. I try them combined together and find what works best for me. And I, that's the most important thing for everybody is you have mm-hmm. to find what works best for you. And part of that is that whole thing. Like I said, terpenes, terpenes can make a big difference. And there's there's terpenes in other plants. There's terpenes in your weed. And if you have certain bad reactions to certain types of terpenes, you have to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I I am all about experimenting. I am so much about you have to experiment with what works the best for mm-hmm. you. And depending on what it is you're working with. I mean, it's like I would not use, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce some of this stuff, but there's this one, it's called a Mexican dream herb. Mm-hmm. And I would never try to use that if I was going to write. Right. Because it, it's like completely different effects mugwort i i like to use mugwort when i'm writing because it kind of helps open me up and i know i channel when i write i know that not everything i write is channeled but i do know that i do channel some when i write and the mugwort helps with that, that too mm-hmm. yeah as does weed one of the thing i like about the the combinations with cannabis for these things is if like if you're somewhere where cannabis isn't legal or you're not comfortable with cannabis, you could still utilize this book and use those blends yes. without the cannabis or with just and, CBD or something with it. And not only can you, you don't even have to smoke them. Most of the things can be used in a tea. Yeah. A, you know, an herbal infusion. You can make it with water and drink it instead of smoking it. I mean, technically it's not a tea, but you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that too. I mean, I have asthma, so. Though I have smoked, it is not advisable. I do too. For me. I, I, so, I, yeah. yeah, I have asked too. <laughs> and so, I smoke. Yeah, I mean, well, I've I have found <laughs> that edibles don't really have much of an effect on me. And, That's common um, for a lot of people. Yeah, so I am. Um, if I want to experience anything, I do have to smoke it, but um, I just don't do it very often. Um, but yeah, I. Uh, I don't know. It's just interesting to read these things because I, you know, I knew there were other herbal smoke blends, but I haven't tried any of them. And then there were ones in your book that I was like, oh, I didn't know that you could smoke that. <laughs> so, like, I, I love lavender. Yeah. yeah. I love to smoke lavender. And what's weird is I, I love this taste of lavender. I love the smell of lavender. 
and I'm not a big fan of vanilla. Mm-hmm. Yet when you smoke lavender, it kind of tastes like vanilla. Mm-hmm. I can see that. There <laughs> is that. Yeah. And it's a, it's a really good one for counteracting bitter taste. Mm-hmm. It's like if some of these herbs are a lot more bitter. You throw a little bit of lavender in there and it changes the taste a whole lot. Peppermint's a really good one to, to change up the taste. Um, mm-hmm. Thyme, the herb thyme. I and mean, it's really strong and you don't need much. And that really changes the taste yeah. of things too. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I hope people will look at it or, you know, look into it just to see. I think there's some new ways to think about stuff. Even if, like I said, even if cannabis isn't your thing, I feel like there's, there's a lot of really good information and new ways to do it. And, you know, I like the idea of uh, how you set up like part of all of the the rituals for, you know, either like for spell work or for like, you know, wheel of the year or moon ceremonies that their um, part of the ritual is making that blend and blessing it. And yes. that that is all part of it. So it's, it's not like, Oh, I'm just going to make this jar of stuff and then do this thing. It's like, no, this is actually part of the ceremony of, of the, of the ritual of doing it. So. I, I like to, it helps you focus your intention far more if when you're doing it, you're doing it all a part of the ritual than if you mm-hmm. just go head into the kitchen and start throwing stuff together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you did mention that you do use some herbs, including cannabis, to write. So how how does that work for you? Do you have like a ritual around that when you write or what? Not how usually. Do you do- a lot of times what I usually do is I just go outside and smoke a whole lot and then I come back in and I vape a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I smoke all day long. I really do. Um, but I don't make like a ritual out of it for writing. And this may sound weird because writing's my job. I mean, that doesn't sound it's, weird. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not, it's, it's more than my job, but I'm, I'm working so hard on framing it as my job and that mm-hmm. I, need to put into it what I want to get out of it as my career. So for right now, I have to keep that this is my job and this is my office because I'm I'm not good about that. Yeah. I'm terrible about it. I really I don't know how I manage to pull off writing these books sometimes cuz I'm I am a procrastinator. <laughs> I am a pro procrastinator. Well, I think having I mean, I'm published independently and you know the deadlines I set and break are my own for the most part um but I think having an outside nudge it's like oh no this is what we want the book helps yes it does help but what would help even more is if like see I know this is part of the problem and part of the problem is that all through high school and college which I did college like later in life when I had kids already and they were little And I would stay up all night the night before something was due and, you know, write my my 15 page papers overnight. And I graduated with honors. So, you know, it worked for me. Mm -hmm. I work better under pressure. And then I, I have issues where I realized that because I was so used to working under pressure, I couldn't work without being under pressure. So I started trying to do other things along with it that weren't really pressuring me 
but gave me something to work on. So it's like during the pandemic when I was writing, I started painting boxes, just wood boxes, mm-hmm. started started painting boxes. <laughs> did it work? I mean, did yeah, it work well, to incorporate it, it, other yeah, stuff? It, it gave me something else to focus on for a while so that I would feel like I was busier. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't giving myself something really stressful to be busy with. Right. Because this is what I was taught my whole life. If you're sitting around not doing something, you were being lazy and unproductive and idle hands and all that crud. So I was taught never to sit still and relax or rest. You always have to be working on something, always had to be accomplishing something. Yeah. And then you, you get to the point where, yes, you're always supposed to be doing that. And then the brain says, I don't want to do that. So the brain doesn't want to do it. And then you kind of shut down and you can't do it. Mm-hmm. And it's the one thing you're supposed to be doing and you can't do it because you're pushing yourself so hard to do it. Yeah. It's yeah, ridiculous. It is. It, is a vicious, it is a vicious cycle. So what, so what techniques do you use now to kind of like get your mindset? And this is, you know, like I'm going to work because I assume you're writing at home. Yes, so like, I write at home. You're, this is literally, this is my office right behind me. I mean, I'm, nice. I'm sitting in my office. I have my, my little dragon dude here. And, <laughs> um, I, I have to, really tell myself, okay, it's time to write. And one of the things I have is I have my candles on my desk. So I will light my candle up when I'm getting ready to write. Um, Got to have the coffee on hand. I do prep work. And what made me realize how much I had to get myself in the state of mind is I, I had a different desk. It was faced a different way. I, I did not like my setup. And then I realized, and my walls didn't look like this. I didn't have near as much stuff on my walls either. Mm-hmm. I realized I missed my office at Barnes and Noble so much. And that's where I had been doing work for five years that mm-hmm. I could not adjust to a new office space. Yeah. So I, I got rid of the desk that I didn't like. I got a smaller desk and I hand painted it myself. And I have my bulletin board back here has all kinds of different stuff on it, which is like just different things from throughout the year, which is what I had done at my job at Barnes and Noble. I would take, you know, the, the girl comes in after doing crafts from story time and she would give me the crafts and those would go on the wall and we'd have special events and different things from that. And that would go on my wall. And that's how my whole office was. And then I came here and I started writing and I had these blank walls and I didn't feel comfortable working in my own house the way I should have been. I needed to set it up more. So I felt like I was at work. I do think that that makes sense to me. There's just, there's so much about like the, for me too, about the setting, like, and I've talked about this on the show, so people are probably tired of hearing it, but like before the pandemic, like if I would get stuck, I would go to a coffee shop and write. Yeah. Because that white noise of other people talking and people making coffee drinks and all that was like, and I wouldn't wear headphones, you know, just kind of listen to what was going on around me. And that was like a good place to like not get distracted because even though you're around all this distraction, I don't have to worry about the laundry. I'm not going to go distract myself by doing the dishes in the sink. You know, like I'm not going to go alphabetize the spice cabinet because I'm procrastinating writing or I'm stuck. 
<laughs> so it was really good to kind of like jar me when I would get stuck on a place. And I've gotten better about writing at home, but I still miss that. It's that it's hard it, and that experience yes. of being somewhere else. Yeah. The distractions are are crazy because I mean, I, I'll take Beat Saber breaks. I'll go out in the living room and play Beat Sabers in between stuff sometimes. Um, but I also, you said that about the coffee shops and I worked at, you know, Barnes Noble, coffee shop, bookstore. Mm-hmm. I found on YouTube, there's actually like an eight, nine hour video yeah. of the coffee shop, bookstore sounds. And you can have them like for the different weather, different yeah. seasons. And I would put that on. I would put on my bookstore, coffee shop, jazz music. Yeah, it's funny. Somebody else just mentioned this <laughs> in an interview. So when this goes out, this will have been like a twofer that someone else will have said this pretty recently. But yeah, no, and I have tried it now and it does help because it's just enough white noise. Yeah. And your to brain goes to that too. place. Yeah. Yeah. I've gone to Airbnbs to get out of my house and write yeah. for the weekend when I have a deadline coming up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The writing retreat thing. Like, I I feel like we haven't really talked about it on the show. Like, I feel like having the opportunity to do something like that, like a writing retreat is huge. I would so love to be able to do that with a group of people. Just go get a big old Airbnb, like one of those really big, nice ones with the pool so that you can take mm-hmm. a break and go. That would be awesome. That would be so much fun. Yeah, I've done it a couple of times with a group of friends. It's been a while. It was, you know, in the pre-pandemic years. Um, yes. But uh, yeah, no, it, it was it was great. I mean, granted, I don't know that we were as productive as we could have been because there was a lot. There were a lot of it's cocktails okay. and a lot of time in the pool. But, it's okay. <laughs> um, but we had a good time and we were able to kind of share also like what everybody was doing, like marketing. Like, how are you flogging your books as well as writing yeah. them? So it was just a good time to decompress with other writers about that kind of stuff. And there is something, you know, there's something so solitary about writing and then to have writing friends who you can then kind of chat with about what's going on. I seriously am just now getting to the point where I am comfortable with other people reading what I'm writing as I write it Mm -hmm. and or even reading it. I mean, the, you know what they say about writers is it's like you're like, oh, oh, my gosh, I, I'm going to write this book and people are going to read it. And then you put it out there and you're like, oh, my God, people are going to read it. Yes. Yeah. And you're like cringe over your own self. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's that and imposter syndrome. Oh, my gosh. It's like I'm literally I am writing my 13th and 14th actual books. I can't tell you how many articles I've done because I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've done articles for so long that I'm, I'm sure it's over a hundred by now. I, I don't know. It's somewhere over there. And yet, especially my buddy PJ, who's one of the guys in, in, in our, in our group. And I've worked with PJ at Barnes and Noble and PJ's gonna be like, you're talking about me again. We guess PJ, I'm talking about you again. He reminds me all the time. <laughs> he reminds me all the time that I am more um, accomplished than what I realized. Mm-hmm. All the yeah. time. He, he, he's, he's on my case about it a lot. And I tell him, yes, yeah, stay on my case because I'm still not, yeah. I still haven't gotten there to realize that. And it's because, you know, 
Growing up, I was told I, to always do better. Always do better, do better, do better, do better, do better. And so when you're always told that, 13, 14 books seems like a heck of a lot to most people. That's a lot of books. And yet I'm still sitting here saying, yeah, but none of them have sold, you know, 100,000 copies. So anything I do that I know I've done good, I'm still going to knock it back down yeah. because that's what and I And you're was comparing taught. to the, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think there's that aspect of it. And I think there's also just like, you know, creatives, there's the gap between like what you know is possible, like your taste, right? Like, like you compare yourself to the pinnacle of whatever field you're writing in. Like, I mean, I yeah. write adult contemporary fantasy. So like, I'm not Neil Gaiman, right? And as long as I'm not Neil Gaiman, I'm, you know, I have imposter syndrome, which doesn't really make sense because Neil Gaiman is Neil Gaiman and he's really the only person who can be <laughs> Neil Gaiman. So, you know, I think that yeah. it, it is just that like, you know, your, your skill that you see in yourself doesn't always match what you know is possible. Oh yeah, out there. definitely. But, I mean, I would like to think that each book I've written is better than the last one. I mean, I want to believe that. I, I do believe that for me. Mm -hmm. I do. I mean, there have been times where I've gone back and it's like, I, I laugh at the first book I did. It's awful. It's awful. It's terrible. I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy it now. I wouldn't buy it now. And it's against e-copy sales, but I would love to redo it someday, maybe. Mm -hmm. But books change over time and what we know changes over time. And I just have to get used to that too. Yeah. <laughs> we all have to get used to that is what we know now. We didn't know 20 years ago. We didn't mm -hmm. know it 50 years ago. And we all just have to, we, we're all kind of stuck in that. I think Yeah, we see it in society every day that we're all kind of stuck in how things used to be and how much somebody's accomplished. And instead of just being, you know, happy with where we're at. Yeah. And I think that's something I've really, trying to work my um I kind of I guess I'm a little bit opposite of you I always kind of had the bucket of my writing is one thing my day job is one thing my spiritual practice is one thing and over the last few years I've just kind of went I'm done with buckets it's all one big pool so like and I think that's really helped me look at you know if I'm writing and I believe that writing is magic I can only get better at magic by writing you know, like I, I, I have good to, way to look at it. It's practice for me <laughs> to do this. And um, it's been really helpful to kind of look at it from a different perspective and to not think of it as my job. Even though, like, I would love to be able to do more than like, you know, buy myself a sandwich with my royalties. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, I mean, there are goals, but, um, you know, I think it's. Uh, I think it's helped me kind of let go of some of that like internal competitiveness, you know, either with other people or the system or whatever. And I'm like, no, I am writing to improve my writing. And I love when people read it and I hear good things. And I sometimes still get crushed when people say bad things. But I also realize that, you know, the reader's experience of the book is not my experience of writing it. Those are yes. separate things. And no writer on this planet is going to write a book that everybody universally loves. Yeah. I, I used to go and read the reviews. I very seldom. Yeah. I very seldom bother to read reviews anymore. 
Um, and part of that was because of, well, I got one review that I'm sure she didn't realize how much she helped me by realizing that reviews don't matter. But she <laughs> she reviewed my book and gave it a like one star and started it off with, I don't smoke cannabis and I never will. Why are you reading my weed book then? Book she literally, yeah. yeah, she literally read the book, didn't like the book because she doesn't smoke weed and it was about weed. And I'm like, what'd you think it was about? <laughs> but, you know, that just it really made me realize that, you know what? I don't care. I don't care if you read my book and you don't like it. It's not for you. And yeah. I am. I know that I am a rather blunt person and I have always been a rather blunt person and I don't see that changing anytime in the near future. <laughs> so I kind of just literally tell people what I think all the time. And I will have people say, well, don't you think that that might offend people who are going to buy your books? And I'm like, you know what? The people who are going to buy my books are never going to be offended by what I say because the kind of things I say those people that are offended are not buying my books. They are not smoking weed. They ain't doing the witchcraft. They, <laughs> <laughs> they have no interest in buying my books unless it's to burn them. So, no, I. I and thank you for your dollar if you're going to set it on fire. Exactly. You know, I, I literally my my husband's ex-wife bought my first book to try to use in court against me. Literally. And I thanked her for the sale right in front of the judge and asked her if she wanted me to autograph it. <laughs> okay. Carrie, I think yeah. that may be one of the best stories anyone has told about. Seriously, it their, was hysterical. Their reviews. <laughs> you know, she's sitting there and she goes, well, she's a witch. I don't know what she's going to do to me. And the judge is like, yeah, I don't either. Just sat there shaking his head. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> wow. But, yeah. There's, and you know, after all that, you just kind of get that there's people who are never going to like it. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, I think if, you know, I should not diminish who I am in my work to please an unknown entity. Like it, the people who will like my work will, will like my work, you know, yes. and, and because I am being honest and candid and this is you know, who I am that shows up in my writing. And, you know, I mean, it's funny to me too, because I write fiction and people are like, oh, are you the blah, blah, the main character? And I'm like, no, they're a character. You know, yes, all the characters came out of my head, but I am not those people, you know, they're pastiches of people I've known over the course of my life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is, it is funny to me that, that that would that that's the advice it's like you don't want to offend anybody who might buy your book and i was like well if they if they are offended by something i've said and they read my book they're also going to be offended by the book <laughs> exactly so. like like my my buddy pj i'm gonna talk about pj again so so pj has now learned that whenever i have like an annual or something that comes out with llewellyn he will go and read it because he bought one to copy used once and he started reading through it because he, you know, he saw that I, my name was in. He's like, "Oh, I'm going to buy this one," and I don't even know what year it was. And the article I had written in that annual was about him. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, 
you wrote about me and you didn't even tell me. I'm like, from now on, I guess you will read what I write, won't you? <laughs> Not to mention if he had gotten it used and how long before that had you actually written it? And if you had yeah, told him, he could have forgotten by the time. It was a couple of years. So yep, I didn't even tell him. I don't tell people when I write about him, read my stuff and you'll know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I always think of that Anne Lamont quote about, you know, you own everything that happened to you. And if people wanted you to write nice things about them, they should have been nicer to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that is a big, huge one. That, that is not I've exact, been. by the way. If you basically, yeah. no, it is no, a paraphrase of what she said, but yeah. If you don't, if you don't want them to, you know, if you feel people are telling the truth about you and you don't like the truth, change the truth. Yeah. I mean, I it, think that there simple. are definitely change. things. There are definitely things that I've elided because I feel like, you know, to protect the guilty and innocent alike, you know, like there are things like <laughs> these people are still alive. I don't want to like out people and, and things like that. So, I mean, I have used pieces of stories, but, you know, also just stuff I make up and all mixed together. Like I think at the end, like, you know, it's and um, I interviewed Jane Meredith last season and um you know, we were talking about her, like the autobiographical stuff in her book. And she said, you know, that that's really not me anymore. Like I can write about the stuff that happened in the past uh, and then it happened to a different person. It is. I'm not, I'm not it's that person weird. anymore. Yeah. And I really it like, very I really weird like writing that about it. idea to think about, like kind of separating yourself, even from your own story of like, I mean, you know, I've changed, like you said, I've changed and grown. And so. Yeah, it is very weird writing about stuff that happened very many, many years ago. Yeah. So what what um, was the impetus to start writing a memoir? Uh, honestly, I have been asked, told by people who have known me for a long time, long time. And long before memoir age even seemed appropriate. <laughs> Um, I've had a very, can you swear on your show? Yes. We have an explicit rating because I figured witchcraft would get somebody's. My life has been so fucked up. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. When you always hear about like the 1% that have people have this stuff happen to them. Oh, only happens to 1% of people. Yeah. That's me. Um, I have had so many crazy weird ass things happen to me throughout my entire life. That since about the time I was 25 years old, my friends have all been, you need to write an autobiography. And I'm like, people would never believe it. They would think it was some (laughs) crazy, made up, insane fantasy crap. And that I was just completely, you know, bonkers. And maybe you do the opposite of like the the like outed these aren't real memoirs problem controversy <laughs> you sell it as a fiction and then it turns out it's all true well that that could you know that's an idea <laughs> <laughs> it is an idea um but then it's like pj pushing me on on realizing more and more about that i have accomplished a lot and how some of that has come about and so I was thinking about it more and more. And then my freaking first husband decided to move four miles away from me. And I'm just like, okay, now I'm pissed. And bringing up stuff that I I thought I had dealt with 35 years ago. And you know what? You find out that when the ex-husband is that close, you may not have dealt with it all. <laughs> so um, it, it's it's been weird knowing that he is there. Um, I have spoken 
with his current wife. Um, it's it brought up a lot, and I'm just like, you know, I can't believe half of the crap that happened to me, and I know other people aren't going to believe half the crap that happened to me. But in one way or another, I need to write it all down. Yeah, I need to, and that I that's what I always do is I have to get it out of here. So we're going to get it mm-hmm. out of the head. We're going to put it down on the paper. And we're going to see what happens. Yeah. Um, even if it just ends up being for my grandkids someday. Yeah. Then they'll have that. But Though I do think there is this like emerging, because I mean, witchy books, like witchcraft, like actually how to nonfiction books are obviously very popular. But I feel like, you know, there's this whole like theme of witches in fiction and television and books and, you know, any possible way. And I do feel like there is this market for witches telling their own stories too. Like, I feel like witch memoir might have its moment. I I think we're, we're getting there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there were obviously the, were people that Starhawk, you know, very big named people. We've always wanted their memoirs, but I think, I think it's important at this point for people to learn, especially after the pandemic to learn about how other people came into it mm-hmm. because during the pandemic, you know, witch talk exploded, it exploded, Witch talk or which witchy stuff went mainstream because, you know, stores realized that they could make a lot of money selling bundles of wildflowers for people to burn. Mm-hmm. This was a big thing. The stones, crystals, anything that stores could make money off of, they helped push the whole thing. So we have all of these people who came into witchcraft because they found something on witch tack or they found something that they bought that felt witchy to them. But we don't have a whole lot of people that are telling their whole story. Mm-hmm. My story of witchiness started when I was six years old. Started at six. It didn't start. You know, when I was 35 watching a TikTok, (laughs) (laughs) there was no Internet. There was no Internet. There was no way for us to know what was going on with people that lived, you know, the next state, much less across the world. And we did not have access to information. By the time I was eight years old, I had seen two dead people and my pastor told me I was going to burn in hell. Why would I just, uh, I mean, talk about getting up on my soapbox. Why would you tell a child that? Like that? I just don't understand thought process behind that. That was a bad thing. It's like the first person I saw dead. I didn't even, I I thought it was Jesus. This is my Jesus story. It's going to be within the the context of what you've been taught, right? Well, there, there was this photo in my house of this guy. And if you went next door to my aunt and uncle's house, they had the same photo. And if you went next door to their house, it was my grandparents and they had the same photo. And that was the majority of my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That was the majority of my life before six years old was I saw this guy's picture in every house I went to. And then. Then my dog died. And that guy showed up and said he was here to take my dog away. So I'm just like, OK, Jesus took my dog. And then my parents came and told me that the dog died. So I knew before the dog had died that she was dead. I'm already crying. They come walking in my room and they're like, why are you crying? And I'm like, because Jesus took Smokey. 
Yeah. So that didn't go over too well. And then when I was eight years old, my mother died. And then I saw her. And then they started taking down all of these pictures in my house of Jesus. And I said to my aunt, why are we taking down the pictures of Jesus? And she said, that's not Jesus. That's your brother, Denny. He died before you were born. Hmm. So then I'm like, oh, wait, not Jesus who came to get the dog. Who's your brother? That means I've now seen two dead people. Mm-hmm. And my 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 pastor was telling us, you know, that once people die, you can't see and talk to them anymore. And I'm just like, yeah, you can. What do you mean I you can't? It happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sitting here I'm like, yeah. And, and they told me that I would burn in hell for talking to the spirits of dead people. So for eight years, I I didn't do anything. I, I closed my eyes. I closed my mind. I closed everything. And then like every good teenage girl in the 1980s, I played with a Ouija board. <laughs> sleepover, sleepover 101, right? Yeah, but wasn't even a sleepover. We were just playing with it at my friend Wendy's house, who is still a friend of mine today. But yeah, um, that was eye-opening mm-hmm. in so many ways. Um, we we started off right off the bat with rules. If you are talking to a spirit on the board that says they are connected to you, you are no longer allowed on the board. And we did this for many reasons, but the main reason being so that people couldn't be lying. Right. People couldn't be moving it around. Because they did not know the answers to questions that would be asked. And that, from using a Ouija board, we started, a bunch of us, we started um, researching. Mm -hmm. And I lived in a town called Zion, Illinois, which if you want to learn something really interesting, Google Zion, Illinois. (laughs) It was started um, halfway between Milwaukee and Chicago on Lake Michigan by a reverend And he thought he was creating the perfect Christian utopia. All of the roads are named after the Bible. Uh, So when we went to that library, needless to say, we found absolutely nothing on anything occultish. Right. That would would make sense. Yeah. So then we went and checked out the Waukegan, Illinois Library, where I found a book that I still have a copy of to this day because I think it is so funny. And that is Ouija, the most dangerous game. Yeah, because that's opening the portals of hell. Yeah, all that fun stuff. Um, Then we went to the Gurney Library and we started learning about spiritualism. Mm -hmm. And I believe that was also that library where we found a book from Scott Cunningham. How many of us walked through that door? <laughs> yeah. 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 And I mean, and this was the mid 80s. Like I said, I graduated in 1988. There was nothing. There was so few things available. There mm-hmm. was no stores around where you could buy anything. You couldn't go to a, you know, a new age shop and buy pagan books that, that didn't exist. it's very different now and i I think i i honestly part of that worries me is i don't think a lot of new people 
new witches understand the history, the recent history. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to know. I think all the history is important for us to know. But recent history that people don't know, to me, that that can be some of the most damaging. Because that's going on right, you know, in front of our eyes and we're missing it. Yeah. Yeah, I do think, I mean, it's easy just to kind of jump in and get excited. And oh, and I, as I've gotten older, I mean, because I found witchcraft about the same time you did, I, you know, like, you know, 91, you know, 89, 91 in that window. And um, I mean, I wasn't interested in history at that point, you know, like I wanted to do spells. And um, but now, like, I'm really fascinated with the, like the history of modern witchcraft and Wicca and all the, even though I'm not a practicing, a, a practicing Wiccan. I'm still interested in the history of it because I think, you know, whether or not I follow Gardner's tradition, you know, well, he's largely yeah, people, responsible for the, you know, modern witchcraft. Yes, he is. But people sit there that and think that Wicca is hundreds of years old. And it's like, no. Nah. Yeah. yeah. 60, 70. And I feel like that comes now <laughs> more outside Wicca. Like, I feel like Wiccans know their own history. I feel like yeah, people yeah, have yes. these expectations about Wiccans. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a funny thing to me. But yeah, and um, re- recently, uh, recently at the time of recording, not as recently when this comes out, but um, Phoenix LeFay and I read Drawing Down the Moon together and talked about it. And, oh, um, cool. And um, yeah, just like that, you know, just the span of the four versions of that book, like how much change in American witchcraft and Wiccan practice oh, yeah. and paganism. Yes. And, so um, yeah, one think- of Starhawk's books has so many notes added to it it's almost hard to read (laughs) it's like yeah because they they do they have to update a lot of stuff but it is really interesting to go back and see how much things have changed yeah so i hope all those people who came to witchcraft through witch talk or social media you know like if this is something that is truly their calling and they stay with it then then they will get curious about these other things and i think that's I think it's why it's important to talk about them and to write books about it. And yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right. Um, and we could probably talk about that for days and days, but <laughs> uh, we try to keep the podcast to an hour. <laughs> so, um, but we have our game of chance at the end where, you know, I'll roll my job. Oh before we get to that, I want to give you the opportunity <laughs> um, to plug what's coming up for you. You've got two books out this year. Like if you're, got any events or anything going on and this will come out september 20th or you know mid to late september so let folks know where to find um, you and then we'll do our game of chance okay uh well my website is kerryconnor.com um and i do have uh like autographed copies of my books are available through my etsy site which you can link from the web page uh so in july it's the weed witches journal should be out then uh, my next project that I will be working on is going to be combining 420 meditations with conjuring with cannabis <laughs> for 420 daily practices of for the weed witch. Oh, and awesome. that okay. will be out in July, not July, uh, April of 2025. Okay. So next year, I do not have anything coming out in 2024 other than like articles, but I am trying to possibly go to Ireland. 
awesome. And if I go to Ireland, then I will be working on something there too. Um, but I am working on the, the 420 uh, daily practices. I am working on some of my autobiography and I do have a fiction book that I have been working on. Awesome. That You've I need been to taking this writing on. job thing seriously. <laughs> I've been trying. I just don't do it near enough. It's like, you know, a lot of people when they sit down, they actually do sit down and they work for eight hours a day. Um, yeah, my brain can't do eight hours of writing. I, 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 I need to at least start trying to write every day mm -hmm. <laughs> or at least every other day, not every once a week. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're only writing once a week, you're doing pretty good. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I always tell people there's like, you know, whatever your process is that works for you, that's your it, process it that just, works for you. Yeah, it you depends know. on the day. And I wish I could get up and just sit down and write and write for hours on end. I imagine everybody wishes that. But one of the things I have found that works best for me, and I don't like doing it, is if I write during the night. Mm -hmm. I can write overnight and I'll I'll get several thousand words done and then I have to, you know, either not sleep or sleep part of the day and my schedule gets really cockeyed. And usually what I do is when I am coming up close to a deadline, I, I have given up on trying to do it the way I'm supposed to. And yeah. I just do what my body tells me to do. And if I'm up to four o'clock writing, I'm up to four o'clock writing. Hey, but I don't want to do you. that all yeah, I don't want to do it all the time. Yeah, I don't want to do yeah, it all no. the time. That that seems like it'd be really hard to do basically night shift writing. So yeah, that'd be rough. All right, so let's play our game of chance. So if oh you boy. listen to podcasts, we go. you know that um, I like to talk about things we're not supposed to talk about, which is why I started a podcast. And um, <laughs> so I will roll a die, and depending on when I roll, if uh, you will get a question about death, sex, religion politics or money and if i roll a six you get to pick which one you want there are no rules to the game so if i roll a question and you're like nah, i don't really want to do that we'll roll again okay. <laughs> so one death oh okay i'm good with that okay cool. yeah right at my scorpio alley um so i would say a lot of people i know who've had spiritual experience with ethnogenic eth entheogenic sorry i can't say that word plants or psychedelics have really shifted their view of death after these experiences. And so has that been true for you? And if so, wow. like, what's a good um, death? What's a good death for you based on those okay, experiences? So I, I honestly, I don't think that cannabis has affected my view on death, mm -hmm. but that is because my view of death started so early. So I said my mom died when I right, was eight. Yeah. Well, then my grandma started taking care of us. So then grandma died and everybody in my family dies in March. So grandma, mom died in March. Grandma died in March. Grandpa died in March. Um, I mean, literally, there are so many people in my family that are gone. Um, I have always and that was one of the things I'm writing about now is in the doing my autobiography is literally writing about my mother's wake mm -hmm. and how. I thought it was so strange at the wake because she's up there at the front of the room and everybody else was more towards the back of the room and they're talking 
and they're laughing. And I'm like, but she's all by herself. And I went over and I sat by her coffin so that she wouldn't be alone. And then, you know, the next day we have the funeral and everybody's bawling. And it's a completely different scene than what the wake is. And it has been like that with my entire family. Mm-hmm. Um, when my father died and my stepmother died, they were both cremated. So we did not have the wake and funeral. It was like all one thing and there wasn't mm-hmm. a body for viewing or any of that. So those ones were, you know, a different feel to them. And I planned those. I completely planned those funerals. They were done. My parents had drawn up stuff and had given ideas. So, I mean, I planned those funerals. My father, when he died, see, this is why I say that the 1%, when my dad died, I spent five days in his room with him. I didn't leave his room. He was in hospice in the hospital. And I think I left the room like twice to walk the hallway. But because my mom had been alone when she died and there had only been, you know, the nurses there, they were trying to put her on a respirator and she died while they were trying to put her on the respirator. My dad had this terrible guilt about her dying alone. And my stepmother at the time was in a wheelchair and she couldn't stay with him. So she felt terrible. I'm like, Mom, I'm going to stay with him till he goes. I will just stay with him until he goes and being the stubborn old piece of shit that he was. The doctors had given him 12 to 24 hours. They said he is not going to make it through the day. And he lasted five more days. It was insane. They're all like, we, we don't, everybody else in hospice has died. We don't know why he's here. I mean, literally, they're like, this doesn't make any sense. They didn't know why his feet were turning black. It was awful. But he died in my arms. I held him as he finally left. Yeah. And I gave him shit about it. But <laughs> he died on March 31st at 930 at night. And I'm just like, you have to go before it's April. You have to go before April 1st. And he wasn't conscious as far as we know. But I'm like, everybody dies in March, Dad. It's okay. Just go ahead and go. And we'll just keep this month sucking big time. And so he died in my arms. And then when my mother died, my stepmother died. She's mom. Um, Both of my parents had donated their brains and their spinal cords to uh, Rush University in Chicago for their memory care unit. and. When mom had already been gone for a week and they were getting ready to prepare her for cremation and we were having the meeting at the funeral home and they asked, you know, does anybody want to see her? And my brothers are, no, I saw her already at the hospital and no, I I don't want to deal with that. No, this. I'm just like, yes, I want to see her. And they all looked at me like, are you crazy? And I'm like, I understand. She's 90. She's been dead a week. Her skull has been removed at one point, put back on, and her tire back has been split open. Yeah, I get it. Just because they couldn't deal with it didn't mean I couldn't deal with it. And I sat there with her for a half an hour and held her very cold, very transparent hand. I have a very different view of death than most people do. 
I am far more comfortable with death than most people are because I experienced so much in in my life. And yeah. most people and don't so have young, them. especially. Yes. So young. And yeah. most people don't hold their father while he's dying. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something, you know, and my, my brothers were like, how can you do that? And I'm like, it's what he wanted. It's what he wanted. I've been told I should probably be a death doula, but I don't know that I could do it for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I know, know that. I, I think you're right. I think that's different. Um, and I so. think that our society has really, especially in America, we have, we've demonized death. Mm-hmm. We have demonized death. We have demonized getting old. These are terrible things to have happen. And it's literally the most natural thing mm-hmm. other than being born is to die. We were all going to die. Yeah. We're all going to die. And so many people fight it so hard with things that don't make any sense. <laughs> you know, yeah. We fight aging. We fight all of this because we have been taught to buy stuff to stop us from aging and to stop us from dying and it, it's kind of gross when you think about how much we have made these look like bad things. Yeah. Well, and I feel like it's made us more neurotic too, frankly. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I I have to laugh. I have purple hair because my <laughs> hair is so white and gray. I can, I can make my hair purple all the time now. And, and I get told repeatedly that that is not appropriate for somebody of my age. What? I mean, you're a couple years older than me. Like, What's, I'm, I'm 53 years old, but I am told that that is not appropriate. That's for 20-year-olds. That's not for 50-year-olds. And I'm like, you know what? Whatever. True Gen X style. Whatever. Yes, my granddaughter thought my hair was naturally purple. That's awesome. She's only six, but That's because awesome. she has seen it purple for so long, she thought grandma had purple hair. I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. That, that's no, so cute. Um, what is the what is the meme? Like, you know, things women shouldn't wear after 50 is other piece other people's, people's expectations yeah, people's of what opinions, 50 looks like. Expectations. Yeah. Like, out, out the window. Does, out the window. It does look different now than what it used to. I admit I, mean, I that. do 50, think about that. I do think about yeah, that a lot. Yeah. 50 looks so much different than what it used to. And we live longer now too, though. Yeah. And we're healthier longer. I mean, I we're think healthier you know, longer for the most part. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I don't know that the pandemic did wonders for that, but um. no, no, <laughs> not there. Not there. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I, I really appreciate your candor on this topic because I do think a lot of people, you know, death is something we've pushed so far away. We've just, we've, yes. we've institutionalized it. It's not something that happens in our day to day. You know, it's like we don't live with death this is, the way that previous generations lived with death. Right. Or other, other countries. Like, this is one of those things where people think I am just way too blunt and way too crass. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And I have for the longest time, my, my service is planned out. There is no funeral. There's no wake. I have a $5,000 life insurance policy for the Jameson whiskey. Big Magnum, pour half out, pour my ashes in, top off with Everclear, stick in the rag, light her up, toss it in the bonfire. Going to have some fun. 
I love that. <laughs> I've always said that I would love like the the fake Viking funeral, you know, where you put me out on a boat yes. and shoot arrows. I think that's probably not I'm environmentally sound. Yeah, not but, anymore. Um, they don't, but they don't I, I do love that. I do love the idea of it. Like I want to go out. Like it should be a party. It should be a celebration yes. of the life have- that a person led i have my playlists made up it's it's mainly irish drinking songs and almost everything from lord of the rings but <laughs> yeah and that's for the serious part then we get the fun part with the irish drinking songs yeah. but yeah i mean when my my parents were a lot older than me um yeah i went to my dad was 42 years old when i was born same. so same. i almost grew exactly up the with same yeah Really? Yeah, I grew up with the stories about how, you know, there didn't used to be ambulance services. Who do you think came and picked up the bodies when somebody died? The family took care of that. Yeah. And people My had, uncle, people had yeah. wakes at home. I mean, they yes. had, that's what the parlor My, was for, right? Exactly. My dad's yeah. uncle was hit by a train. And it was the family's responsibility to go and find his body parts. Oh, wow. They, they didn't have yeah. people who took care of all of that. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things Americans do not understand. You know what? They're going to have to start understanding real quick, especially with things like, you know, Florida going on. We have given the jobs we do not want to people willing to do them. Right. And when we sit here and claim that people are taking our jobs, that are people who want to do the jobs that we don't want to do. And when Americans have to actually start doing some of those jobs they don't want to do. Yeah. But nobody wants to work. Yeah. Nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to work in the fields down in Florida, picking the vegetables and fruit. That's what. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All those, where are all those white people at who want those jobs that are being stolen? And yet they can't get enough people down there to pick the food. Hmm. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. They should be lining up because they wanted those jobs. And now, now there's nobody there to do them. Yeah. I love how I just veered into politics. <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> I do it all the time. Because, you know, the things that didn't used, to, things that are political now didn't used to be political. Yeah. I mean, we yeah, used to like call things it, like public health weren't politicized. Yeah, like, things yeah. that are now political, we used to call them freaking common sense. And now now everything has to be politicized. Yeah. And it's it, I blame Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon for destroying this country. I seriously do. <laughs> I do. Um, one took away mental health care and the other one made health care for profit. And I think that has been the worst things that have ever happened to this country. Yeah. We have so many people... Not only do we have people who cannot distinguish between reality and fantasy at an alarming number, we've had them in the White House. Yeah. We've had them in the White House. And you know what? I I I I am going I am I feel bad for Trump in a way. I seriously do. And the reason why I feel bad for him in a way is because my father had dementia and I know what it looks like and his kids should be disgusted with themselves. That's the only way I feel sorry for Trump is that as a father, his children have let him make a fool out of himself when he is obviously so 
not well. When a man picks out a woman in a photograph and says, that's my wife. When his more current wife was standing right next to him and he didn't, wasn't even phased that Ivanka was, or Ivana was in this picture. But he looked at that picture and said, that's my wife, Marla. And not only was it not his wife, it was not Marla. Mm -hmm. That him doing that and the reactions, just that whole deposition video that they showed. I'm like, God, I hate that man. But boy, he is definitely not in the right state of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Dementia is horrifying. Even. It is. Yeah. My, my father knew I was his daughter. And he knew that my name was not Eleanor and he knew my name was not Carol, but he could not remember for the life of him what my name was. Oh, yeah. But he knew I was his kid. He just couldn't remember my name. And when I see another guy sit there and, and look at a picture of somebody that's not his wife and say, well, that's my wife. You know where it's coming from. Yeah. You know where it's coming from. And. He's out there every if I had done that to my dad, my, my dad, if he had tried to run for president, they would have locked my ass up for elder neglect neglect. <laughs> yeah. You know, they would have said, how dare you treat your father like that? And I'm just I feel I think his kids need to seriously realize what they have done to their dad, too. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't a great father, but damn. Yeah. What What a legacy to leave. What a legacy to leave. Uh, well, that seems like a good but odd place. <laughs> I just want to thank you for being on the show. And I appreciate your candor on, on just like, you know, everything. And thanks for sharing your stories with us. Yeah, I'm, I, I can't shut up. <laughs> Hey, it makes it a lot easier on the host when the guest actually talks. You know, so I've, I've been told that, I will admit, I have been told that it is far better for me to sit here and blab than some of the people that come on and they can't get anything out of their mouths. And that's, yeah. that's got to be hard. I mean, I've done interviews. So, uh, you know, on the other side, mm -hmm. and yeah, when you can't get them to talk. So I just blab a whole lot. And then, you know, that hey, way. It works. It works. Yeah. <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much. And good luck on all this stuff coming out and stuff coming up. Thank and you. I hope thank Ireland you. happens for you. That I do too. Fabulous. I do too. Um, the weird thing about it is, as I'm looking to go there and work on busing tables for five months in an Irish pub. Oh, cool. Awesome. That sounds great. Because that would be so much fun to write about. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What? Nothing is wasted on a writer, right? No, nothing. <laughs> so. Nothing. Awesome. Well, take care and hopefully we'll continue to cross paths that would be fun great <laughs> thank you so much witch lit is a production of thousand volt press and is edited by julian rashke our intro music is cosmic glow by andrew k and our outro music is voices by alexander shanekar transcripts and all our previous episodes are available at witchlitpod.com and you can follow us on instagram at witchlitpod please help other witches find us by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts thank you for listening to and reading witchlit <laughs>